This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. So for folks uh, who might not know, we have more of a... We were actually introduced first and became friends, I would say, before even anything to do with the, with the startup space. But um, we were we played on the same basketball league for uh, for some time in Toronto, which was, a, which was a good time. Yep. Yeah, it was a great time. Um, we were able to get it in before COVID happened. So I'm excited for our comeback. And you only won the ch- championship when I actually left the team and, and actually left Toronto to come to Chicago. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll take whatever credit. Still counts. <laughs> It still counts. You don't win a game. You don't. You don't win a championship in one game, right? Yeah, that's, well, thank you. I uh, we definitely a strong center in yourself, man. Uh, but listen, it's it's been a it's been a pleasure being your friend, of course, and kind of watching your rise too. And for folks who might not be connected to you, uh, so Daniel is a serial entrepreneur, obviously you know passionate about making change, and, and he recently sold uh, two startups that were venture backed, joined Airbnb full time, kind of saw the. Uh, the side of Airbnb from a market management standpoint gave him a really cool vantage. And then three years ago, uh, co-founded a startup in Toronto called Key, which is creating a world, especially in Toronto, where real estate becomes more affordable and something that someone can actually do from both an investment, but also from a living perspective. So listen, from someone right now in Chicago, but who has a lot of friends in, in Toronto, this is something that's that's really important and hopefully makes a, a good dent for us in the in the market. Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a investor in Chicago that we work very closely with, Modern Ventures, who have been an incredible, incredible partner to our business and forever grateful for their support. And uh, yeah, they've. It, it, it seems like, yeah, they they have a, a program called Passport, and um, what they do is they they have incredible LPs from the real estate industry, and they help companies that are uh, typically a bit earlier than their mandate get exposure to their LPs and build out case studies to then eventually uh, invest in their business. But I guess from a high level, Key's creating a world where real estate is a source of freedom and prosperity for everyone. If you look at the two biggest challenges holding people back from becoming a homeowner, it's typically one, having a large down payment, and two, being in a position to qualify for and service a mortgage. So with Key, someone can purchase a home with with 2.5% of the value of that suite. They put them down deposits towards eventually purchasing 100%. And they can be a homeowner or co-owner year sooner uh, because of our model. There's definitely a lot I want to unpack for sure. Um, how about we start high level and, and just kind of talk about the, the market in which you operate in at the moment. I'm sure it's going to grow beyond Toronto. But for for those listening who might not be aware, I mean, Toronto is one of the hottest real estate markets at the moment whether hot is in a positive or negative connotation, you know, but the average condo price for a one bed right now, I think is about 850, I mean, 850,000 is realistic. So right now it takes nearly three decades just to save up for enough for a down payment. Three decades. It used to take only a few years. So, and, and if you look at income, isn't going up at the same rates as housing prices. So in cities like Vancouver, Toronto, many other markets around the world, People are actually getting further and further out of reach to be able to ever own a home. So what we're doing is addressing those major challenges of just getting a wedge into the market where you can become a co-owner a year sooner. And then every month directly in in your iPhone or your mobile device, you can buy more equity towards eventually purchasing 100% after a few years. And it has to be, I think, your primary residence. So it can't be like an investment asset, as an example. Uh, so, So that's one part. The second part with key is... So you can put as little as 2.5% uh, 
uh, and you own a fraction of the house, and as you build up equity to your build, uh, building 100% equity in the, into the house itself, are you see, like what what kind of uptake are you seeing with Torontonians with this kind of concept right now? Yeah, it's been overwhelming in a very positive way. We have over 100 people joining our wait list every week, some days more than 100 people, and that's with zero marketing spend. So we have, uh, we have when we do experiment with marketing, we're out-competing industry average by nearly every metric. Um, instead of a $15 cost per action on Instagram, we have a $2.50 cost per action. Um, we've had someone go from a cold Instagram ad that introduce them to key to living in a home that they co-own 23 days later. Um, and actually the Toronto star wrote an article on that, that person. And it was uh, number one spot on Apple news and front page of their business paper went internally viral, uh, which, uh, which was great. Yeah. I mean, the, the concept is exciting, obviously, like you're, you're finally giving people a chance. And the other part is it's a much proactive, so much more proactive solution. Right when when you think of everybody you just highlighted having to mean one that's insane, second of all it's like well everybody I feel like is comfortably waiting for a down downturn in the market. That's the other thing, right? It's like hopefully prices go down, but historically they haven't. And so what do you do in the meantime? Do you just continue renting, which is kind of you know a shitty proposition. Yeah, I find it really hard to see a scenario where in a market like Vancouver or Toronto that prices would take a significant dip. Ultimately, with key, you'd be far better off if the markets took a dip uh, in our model than you would as a traditional homeowner, because if the markets went down 10%, you have some leverage in our model, but it's not the same leverage that you experience with conventional mortgage, right? Um, so if the markets took a dip, you'd essentially could sell your equity position and still have uh, a good amount of money that you're walking away with compared to if you bought a house today and markets go down 10%, then the bank owns 100% and you're walking away with nothing, right? So it's a it's key, key is really, um, as much as the more that the real estate market goes up, the harder it is to, for people to be able to own a home. For us, uh, the platform works very well in the up market and just as well in the down market. So we're indifferent to to price sensitivity. You mentioned that there's a wait list as well. Is that because I'm building that marketplace? I mean, you obviously have a good chicken and egg problem where the demand side is higher than the supply side, fortunately. Uh, but just curious, like, is, is that because you're still trying to build it, the, the supply side of houses? Yeah, so we have a number of, uh, we, ha we have supply on our platform now. So it's a very interesting moment in time that we're having this discussion because uh, now we're in revenue we have product in market. We have the regular regulatory structuring to be able to operate in Western jurisdictions all around the world. So it's it's a very exciting moment for for us to be in. Um, but uh, yeah, we have far more demand than we have supply, and and for us it requires uh, it requires a growth an education curve that we have to climb with supply partners. And we have some great supply partners. We have multiple families in Toronto who have listed their inventory on our platform. We just signed a deal with a group in the United States that uh, build single family rentals. And now instead of just building them and holding them as rentals, they're actually giving people a hand up and helping them own a home year sooner. And we incentivize the right behavior so that they're actually getting a better return on their investment than if they just kept them as rentals long term. And that was going to be part of my question is like, what's, how do you approach the geography angle of it? Is it starting in Toronto and then kind of moving up across Canada, then into the U.S.? What do you think of the hotbeds? 
Yeah, so Toronto is where we've started. Uh, it's where all our inventory is today. We've signed our first deal in the US, so that's exciting. Uh, we're looking at a few different pilots throughout the US right now, and that's the group based out of Chicago that we're working with, uh, Modern Ventures, who are helping make uh, introductions to their LPs and, and their network. Uh, we're getting pulled to many different markets. We're in conversations with groups across the West Coast. I've been contacted with developers in South Africa, across Europe, across Australia and Asia, um, someone who owns part of the fifth ring in Beijing. We have a team member who's in China right now and he sees the need uh, in China um, firsthand. Uh, Colombia, Mongolia, you name it. I even had someone from Yellowknife who was like, we need this in Yellowknife <laughs> out of all places. You know, everything's relative, right? You point, you throw a dart at a globe, a, a map, uh, people are renting there, right? And and there's and renting shouldn't be vi villainized, right? That renting isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, and home ownership isn't necessarily a good thing, too, right? Um, we have household debt uh, that is at an unhealthy rate right now. Um, we have people who are over levered, and um, look at 2008, what happened, right? So key, we're not we're not saying that everyone needs to become a homeowner. Um, but we do see the opportunity of having more financial freedom and having a stronger P&L of your home with homeownership. Uh, but we also don't want people to forfeit uh, their freedom and have to maintain a certain lifestyle just to service their debt. So I guess to rewind for a minute, um, I know you gave a bit of an, a background, but a little bit of the inspiration behind Key. As you mentioned, I started a couple venture-backed companies. I sold those a number of years back. And then I moved from Vancouver to Toronto and I joined Airbnb full-time. At Airbnb, I had my team in San Francisco, my family in Vancouver. Toronto is a very exciting chapter of my life, but I didn't know how long Toronto would be home for. Regardless, I hired a realtor to help me find a place to buy. And then I had the, the person who actually ran North and South America for Airbnb found out that I hired a realtor and he said, dude, what are you doing? Are you at a point in your life that you really want to own a house? What happens if you get relocated in a few months to San Francisco, right? And and not only are you not getting any financially further ahead, but there's all these time costs and hassles just throughout the experience that you don't have time for with this new role, you know, just just enjoy. And I was 25 years old at the time. So, uh, so long story short, I ended up renting a place. It was in a building that was built by, by Plaza Corp. Uh, the founder of Plaza Ventures is now my co-founder. I dove really deep into fractional investing in real estate, uh, experienced firsthand this trend that was going to take place, but everyone was focused on allowing access to investing in real estate, but no one was addressing actually giving someone a wedge into being able to build equity incrementally and, uh, and to be able to own a home year sooner. So I pitched uh, purely a, a concept around democratizing access to owning real estate to Rob Richards, who's the co-founder of Plaza Corp. Or sorry, Plaza Ventures, now one of the top funds in Canada. Rob asked me some really good questions and then told me he's been thinking about this for over five years, that Plaza Corp has over $2 billion worth of real estate in their pipeline. And uh, we started to think abundantly of what would this look like if we could um, if we could create a new model where someone could own a home with just 2.5% down and that they could build equity incrementally. And, and then on the other side of the marketplace, a, a large developer what would it look like if they could sell 
a block of suites in advance to people who are actually able to uh, become a homeowner because of this model. And then incentivize good behavior. So an owner resident pays a proportionate amount of repair and maintenance costs. So someone's not going to destroy the place. A developer spends 10 to 15% on non-marginal costs from opening up sales offices to paying brokers to financing fees. That key would completely strip out. So by creating a direct consumer brand for consuming real estate incrementally, it's a far more efficient process holistically, right? So, and then, and then they're not locking in the value on day one, like, you know, 600K condo today and then three years from now, they sell it at 300K where they left a ton of cash on the table. There's an automated valuation methodology that we use to calculate fair market value on a monthly basis. So the developer or the asset owner is selling incrementally on the way up in an up market and doing far better than if they were just to buy it today or sell at today's prices. It seemed uh, curious, and, and thank you for bringing that up. It was going to be a question, actually, in terms of kind of the inspiration to it. But it does seem like the concept for Key is a little bit of Airbnb and a little bit of the traditional conventional buy, sell, rent model. Like it's somewhere in the middle, right? And, and it seems almost too good to be true. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like it's such a an amazing solution to a very bad pain point that's been gradually increasing. You know what I mean? And, and I even haven't, I haven't taken advantage of the platform yet, but I, I can assure you, and I told you this even as a side, and I'll say it now. I mean, if I ever move back to Toronto, that's something I'm going to take advantage of. If I can find a house through key, that makes sense. I'm, that's definitely the route I'm going to take. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. It's, what, what's awesome is we have every one of our owner residents that live in one of the key units are the best advocates for our business, right? Uh, people who have made thousands of dollars in a couple months uh, just because of the market going up and they're getting a discount to market rent. So if you compare us to renting, uh, you're pretty much always better off because you're getting a reduction to what you would be paying in rent. Plus you have an equity position that appreciates in value alongside the real estate market. You could be better off with traditional home ownership uh, if you have a, a large enough down payment and if you're in a position to qualify for and service your mortgage and you don't mind the lifestyle challenges that, that comes with and the market continues to appreciate. So purely from a financial position, you could be better off if you buy and hold real estate longer term with a conventional mortgage, but it doesn't come without its costs and hassles, right? So key for someone like us that are younger and you know we have big careers ahead of us and uh, we, we value our freedom, um, it makes a lot of sense. It's the reason why I'm still renting in Toronto, uh, but uh, you know, good chance that I'll move back to Vancouver in the coming months where I'm from. So, uh, and when I move back to Tr uh, Vancouver, I don't know how long that will be home for too, right? I would love to be able to move to Austin and help us open up an office in Austin or um, you know, spend a couple years in Berlin or wherever it might be and, and raise a family. And uh, just, I wanna have the benefits of owning, but the freedoms of renting. I don't wanna become house poor and have to maintain a lifestyle just because I have a mortgage, right? This is music to my ears. That, that's exactly, and, and the reason I'm, I feel like, honestly, I, I don't do this often, but I, I really am excited for the platform. And I, I have no stake in this, just so everybody knows. But other than it's just a cool concept. And the reason I, I I feel very excited about it too, is exactly what you just mentioned. Aside from the financial perspective, I mean, and first of all, and that's massive, by the way, the fact that you don't even have to take out debt to be able to put a down payment by itself is massive. But the, the second most important part for folks like you and I or on the younger generation, 
observation early in their career, for the most part, the, the flexibility, especially post-COVID, has become even a, a, a larger importance. I think before it was always there, funny enough, kind of like Zoom, metaphorically speaking, but you started using it more, you know, when the situation called for it. And people all of a sudden who could have always worked remotely here and there just never wanted to or never really asked the question like, hey, can I spend three weeks in Florida and just work in the sun for, you know, for for this month when it's like a blizzard in Chile? Yeah, you can. You could have always done that. But yeah, it's so much better too, right? It's so much better. It's only it's only our limitations in how we view life that's held us back from being able to work remotely in Florida. And it's proven that it's way more efficient. It comes with some challenges when it comes to, uh, you know, mental health and all the all the uh, challenges of, of working remote and having a lack of human connection in a way. And uh, really, that's a big part of that is just, I guess, the times that we're in, but also the, the employer's responsibility in doing things that there is the right balance because um, it's so easy to be in back-to-back meetings all day, every day. But if anything, COVID has taught us what's possible, right? And being able to to have freedom and to be highly efficient and to measure what matters. If you're if you're running a company where you're measuring success based on people showing face uh, and not able to quantifiably say if someone had a good or a bad week or if they had a good or a bad year, it probably means that uh, there's some leadership challenges to, to address, right? So when I first joined Airbnb, one of the executives there told me, Airbnb is not about showing face. They don't care where you do work, how you do work, when you do work. None of that matters. Just do your job and be a good person and stay humble and stay hungry. Be happy, you know, and and ask for help when you need it, but no showing face. And that resonated, right? I've taken that same learning into everything that I do, including our team, right? We have we have a very diverse team from, you know, people that are in China working right now to we hired an engineer in South America, people from coast to coast in Canada. And uh, and for us, it's just about being value aligned and doing great work. I mean, in many ways, Airbnb was kind of the first entrant in this whole space, right? I mean, less remote working, but more remote living. But it's still kind of a similar concept because now we're kind of doing both for the most part. I mean, most people are. Um, and, and I feel like workspaces are becoming more like hot spaces, you know, kind of the consulting Accenture model where it's hot desks versus like you have a full office yourself, Daniel, and I have a full office and it's the corner, you know, glass view of the lake or whatever. I mean, that's solely disappeared. So uh, it's funny that you probably never anticipated this, I'm sure, but still, what was it like for you? And did you ever have to pivot the, the business model to kind of coincide with the changing landscape? So we, we have made a number of adjustments to our model. Um, originally, we were looking to unlock institutional capital to, uh, to then buy entire condominium buildings wholesale. So we'd receive a discount and we go to the Harvard Endowment Fund or the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and look for, uh, for them being able to invest a billion dollar size check or a hundred million, whatever it would be, to then buy an entire building at a discount. So that was the original model. And then we would manage the real estate and then source people to live in that home and buy it incrementally. Uh, and what we realized is that uh, when when we went and launched uh, our first closing of 450 million of March of 2020, uh, when COVID first hit, is that institutional capital isn't going to re- isn't going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into new managers when the world was collapsing, 
And every VC that we raised money from have wanted us to be asset light. So they didn't want our growth to be a force function of capital. So we worked very hard on creating a model where we truly were a two-sided marketplace. One side of our marketplace is demand, which we've talked a lot about. And then the other side of our marketplace is asset owners where they could sell incrementally, they can have the right alignment of interest, they can juice their returns, whether if they traditionally build and sell or if they build and rent by selling gradually and a plug and play solution, which is key. Um, and then we've made a ton of adjustments when it just comes to how we're uh, structured from a regulatory perspective, the different variables in our model, the use of, of leverage. So very much key, key I wouldn't say has done many outright pivots, but we're evolving on a weekly basis. You know, what you know about key yesterday is probably different than what it is going to be tomorrow. Um, and, uh, and we just keep getting better and we communicate, we have, we have an owner resident agreement. So the, the, the owners that are, um, owner residents that are living within key units today are locked in with a certain contractual agreement with the asset owner. Uh, but, uh, but as, we have better uh, features coming out. We give the option, such as proportionate leverage. Before before we went live, we didn't have leverage built in. And the reason for that is we felt like as a society, we are over levered and with le leverage comes many challenges and what happens when interest rates go up because of rising inflation. And uh, working with some strong government stakeholders, they actually encouraged us to have leverage because the asset owner and the owner resident weren't on the same level playing field because if the asset owner was 80% levered and the owner resident had no leverage, then the owner resident wasn't getting further ahead at the same rate that the asset owner was. So if you didn't hear anything in this podcast, <laughs> I can assure you that the core innovation of what we've built is a level playing field and equal return profile for an aspiring owner resident and an asset owner where they can come together and one plus one equals three and key facilitates that transaction. How, how do you, as a, this is more like a, I guess, general advice, but as a founder, both internally and externally, so internally to your team and externally to spectators, investors, you know, uh, fans of yours, friends of yours, uh, how do you communicate that those micro changes without kind of rupturing the, the, the brand or the reputation or credibility? Well, every, every change that we make has been for the better for the, of the platform, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's been in consultation with the people who are living in our, in our homes. Um, it's been with many conversations with owner residents, with all different stakeholders, right? From, uh, from many different legal counsels. Uh, we encourage every owner resident to uh, seek out independent legal and accounting advice. And uh, there's been areas of our contract that were highlighted early on that could be more efficient. Uh, and then we've made adjustments, right? So just if you look, if you study any successful tech company, they've overly obsessed around consumer feedback and creating an 11 star experience for the people that they serve. So key is no different than that. We've done robust um, interviewing of our owner residents. <laughs> They've been super supportive, which we're grateful for. Um, and, but uh, but we've we've learned a ton, and we'll continue to evolve. And I can't imagine I can't imagine a world where uh, our model would be fixated for life. You know, just like just like how Airbnb every six months updates their terms of service, and there's new cancellation policies, and 
insurance products or whatever a super guest program that will be introduced will be no different are you on the side i feel like there's there's always this debate whether the consumer is always right or whether you know sometimes they are sometimes they're not but the founder also knows like the trajectory of the business you know that kind of debate i'm talking about curious what what side, what side of that uh angle are you on yeah listening to consumers is similar to looking at data before you make a decision right Sometimes the data isn't aligned with the decision that you feel like is the right approach and you make a conscious decision. The same is true when talking to your consumers. You don't know what your consumers want, so you need to talk to them. Ultimately, the consumer often doesn't know what they want, so you have to build product and run experiments. Then with that data and those learnings, you can make a decision on what's the best future roadmap of your business. But I would never take data as an absolute source of truth. And the same is true when talking to consumers. It's like that classic saying, the classic saying around if you ask uh, what people would want for transportation a couple hundred years ago, they'd say faster horses, right? So you got to be you got to be careful, like taking taking parcels of what they're saying. Because maybe what they're really telling you is they want to get to the to point A to point B in a faster context. So maybe you have the foresight of knowing that, you know, the next mode of transportation is coming. So maybe they're not giving you advice on the fact that horses are going to be around for forever as, as, the, as the common mode of transportation. But at least they're telling you what their pain point is so you can solve for it eventually. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of the lean uh, startup methodology. Build, measure, learn, run experiments, measure those experiments. Um, look at your results to make a decision based on those results. So I also love the thought exercise of what's not going to change, right? So instead of trying to think about how you're going to change the world and everything that you're going to build and create, what's not going to change? Well, one thing that's not going to change is people valuing freedom. One thing that's not going to change is when someone gets a conventional mortgage and they look at their first uh, statement and they see that they're paying way more interest than principal of the home. I don't think that will ever change where people look at their 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 mortgage and go, oh, these fees look fair and are an, you know, an exciting opportunity for my stage in life. Right. Um, so I think there's there's aspects that we can look at and uh, and are just innate desires of humanity. And we can address and build a business around that. Or Jeff Bezos is famous for this. So what's not going to change? Well, one thing that's not going to change is that people are going to want things as quickly as possible. And they're going to want things at a good cost, right? <clears throat> Airbnb, that people are going to want a sense of belonging. They're going to want to feel like they can belong anywhere, right? I love that, dude. I'm tweeting this. That's it. This is a tweetable moment of the plot. There's always one tweetable moment, but this is it. Um, you know what it reminds me of? It, it's it's a very different angle of what you're saying, but it reminds me. I had um, I had the v, the former VP of Innovation and Creativity at Disney, and he we, we did this practice together. And it's funny going through it myself because I caught myself. I'm like, oh shit, I might have to edit this. But uh, we played this 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 game where um, he would start something. You know, so for instance, like um, he would pose a, a, maybe a problem. And instead of me saying, yeah, but that's never going to work, I would say, yes, and, and I would add to it in a more sort of positive environment because, and maybe you deal with this in a startup or in a corporate environment, but I'm sure if you mention an idea, 
the first thing people say, yeah, Daniel, that's that's really is we have X Y Z to deal with. Or but you know, but the issue is like that's not going to work because one. Two, so instead, it's like, well, that's a great idea, Daniel. And actually, what's even more exciting, and if you just do that, even in principle, I think changes the entire attitude. So, but anyways, it reminds me kind of of the same. A hundred percent. Yeah. It'd be so amazing if that's the. Our vocabulary is so important, the vocabulary that we use, the words that we use, and even just uh, the, the thoughts that we have, right? Watch your thoughts because they become words. Watch your words because they become actions. Watch your actions because that becomes habit, and watch your habit because that becomes your character. Your character becomes your destiny, right? So it all starts with a thought, and it's important, the self-talk that we're telling ourselves. And if you're, if you're looking at the world and you're drawn to negativity, like, most of us are, right? 90% of the news is negative because that's what uh, speaks to us in the sense that we're innately hardwired to remember if there's a bear in the bush because it's pretty important to remember where that bear is because you'll die if you don't remember, right? Uh, compared to remembering, you know, what tastes good some bush out in the wild, right? So we're innately uh, hardwired for, for negativity and that's why it surrounds us and that's really easy for uh, the content we consume to then become who we are, right? So if we took a simple experiment of any time someone proposed something and we say, yeah, and there's the opportunity to layer this on top of it, or there's an opportunity to think of it this other way, um, I think we'd have a, a much better society, um, type of society that uh, would probably have a lot more innovation. And it is easier to be a naysayer. It's easier to you know, look at something and cross your arms and say like, hey, this is wrong for whatever reason. And unfortunately, that's the voice that gets more recognition, right? Compared to the real sign of leadership, which is being a first follower, which is someone that's coming in and saying, this is amazing. I've noticed that there's this aspect of your business that could be more powerful. Let me help you with that, right? Let me, let and, and you know, that's... Um, Unfortunately, the, the, the negative, the negative uh, narrative is, is what creates more Twitter followers or people retweeting for whatever reason or creates a social proofing feedback loop when you're in the comment section of, our, of you know, Reddit or whatever it might be. But I heard someone recently talking about a thought experiment that he did, and he said, when I come home, regardless of how my day is, I'm going to start with the most positive thing that happened to tell my wife. And his relationship was struggling. And what he said is that every day he would say, I had the most amazing cup of coffee today. Or the barista remembered my name. Or I, whatever happened in that day. Or someone who you know, smiled at him or a funny joke, whatever it was. And he said the simple experiment of just coming home and saying the number one highlight of his day as a practice to update his wife fundamentally changed their entire relationship. That's really cool, man. Dude, I love this. I mean, I know we're going deep into this, but it's actually great. I told you. You asked me what kind of what kind of format this is going to be. I'm like, think of it as the GRE for entrepreneurship. Um, but it's funny when I you know when I first uh, learned about this whole concept, actually, it was through Tony Robbins. I don't know if 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 the same was for you. I read his book called Unlimited Power. It's one of his like really old books, to be honest. I was like maybe 17 at the time, and it completely changed my life. And literally one entire chapter is focused on words. And that was the first time that I ever asked how powerful words can be. And then I realized, to your point, when I come home you know, with my fiance, even if, if it's a, a dull day, it's our choosing to say, yeah, you know, my day was fine. 
but that's still a choice. And, and to your point about that being kind of the consensus, it really is true because sometimes I catch myself, like my inner voice wants to say it's a great day. I had an amazing conversation today on a podcast, but then I, I kind of, I don't know if you feel this way. I'm kind of resistant sometimes because I don't want to look like the Ted Lasso of, of society, you know, where I'm like overly op- optimistic and positive and happy all the time because then I feel like I'm the outlier, you know. I think it's important to be vulnerable and in touch with your emotion too, right? If you're having a hard time, uh, it's very important that, yeah, that you communicate that. Uh, I think as a, as a whole and just being able to communicate, a lot of us uh, struggle, right? Um I love the framework of nonviolent communication of just being able to say, hey, George, when you do this, this is how I feel. I'd love you to be to do this instead so that we can create this sort of relationship. Right. And how powerful would that be if you if you notice that you're feeling sad or angry or whatever it might be, you could go to your partner and say, hey, I notice when you roll your eyes or whatever <laughs> you're observing an action you're not point, you're not shaming or anything and then you just talk from a place of of how you feel and on the on the topic of, of words being powerful look at look at um the words when it comes to what you feel like you can or cannot achieve so instead of when someone says that you know can you can you uh do something that you might not be able to do I love being, or are you a runner or whatever it might be? You could say, I'm not a runner yet. Like add a yet to the end of that sentence. And now it's no longer your identity not being something or not being able to do anything. It's a possibility, right? Um, it just goes back to sort of being intrinsically or extrinsically motivated or uh, feeling like you have an internal or external locus of control over your life of, is life happening to you? Or are you creating it and having a conscious choice um, on uh, on where you're going and how you're going to get there? Right. Speaking of vulnerability, um, so my fiance is a clinical psychologist in training. I feel like I mentioned that a little too much, but it comes up a lot now, obviously, uh, and it's an important thing. That's why I bring it up a lot. But you you mentioned about being vulnerable, and, and of course, like I've read Brene Brown as an example, which was very left field for me. And to be honest, one of the things I've really learned this, these past two years is how to do that you know, and, and, and how to be okay with when things aren't good, not, not mulling in it necessarily, you know, but being able to vent and, and being okay that things aren't always going to be okay. Um, so dealing with that side as an entrepreneur, how have you built a practice around being level set uh, from a, from a mental health perspective? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm super blessed, um, to have been raised in the family that, that I come from my mom, clinical psychologist as well uh brenny brown trained went down to texas and met met brenny brown and went through the power of vulnerability um workshop and start, facilitated her own vulnerability talks yeah and brenny brown how amazing is she uh great content and it's great that she brought it very much mainstream um so yeah i was raised always to you know communicate my emotions and um and be able to share how i feel and uh, that vulnerability is a, is is strength, right? It's not weakness. Despite if you ask most people on the street, what does vulnerability mean to you? And it's you know it's being weak, whatever those answers are. I actually uh, my mom my mom passed a few years ago, and I when I was cleaning up, yeah, it's all it's all good. It's uh, it's life. But when I was cleaning up her office, I came through the Roosevelt quote around the man in the arena. So my mom used to hand these quotes out the best it's the best so i i have it in my wallet um so 
not that I have my wallet with me much anymore with Apple Pay or whatever, uh, but but I love it, right? It's not the critic that counts. It's a, it's a man in the the man in the arena that has you know blood on his face and is you know beat up and bruised, but he's the one who's getting after it, right? He's the one who's doing things. He's not he's not judging other people for what they're doing. He's he's you know he's not talking about it. He's doing it, and it resonates with me so much. Um, and it's so powerful, right? It's uh, anytime you do something new, you're going to have uh, people challenge it. Ultimately, my view is to be a positive warrior, right? It's just to keep getting after. Doesn't matter what you you do. On deck is a community that I'm a huge fan of, um, and uh, and I know that the CEO of On Deck often talks about being a, a positive warrior as well. Um, you look at air. Positive warrior, I think, is just is just focusing on on the the positive, right? Instead of the the one percent negative of anything that you do. Anytime you introduce something into the world, there is change that you're bringing, and change is an innate threat to our identity. So it's really important for us as founders uh, to focus on the 99% positive and make sure that we're in, embracing the world that we want to create. I mean, ultimately, every dollar we, we spend casts a vote for the type of world we want to live in. Every dollar we invest as an angel investor casts a vote for the type of world we want to live in. Every company that we join, every line of code, every action that we take, every word that we speak is casting a vote for the type of world we want to live in. So to me, being a positive warrior is deciding that I'm going to create a positive world and make sure that my time and energy is going towards moving society forward in a meaningful way that's in line with my values. Yeah, I love that. Um, one question I wanted to ask you too, um, you're, you're on the younger side. I don't know your exact age. I'm assuming 30 or yep, a little bit. Yeah, nailed it. 30. 30? Yep. Okay, perfect. I remember you were two years older when we had dinner the first time, thanks to, to Swish and, and Sad, Siddiqui, our, our, our good friends from TO. Um, I wanted to ask this question to see, because we're kind of talking about this anyways, but do you ever get imposter syndrome when you're a younger leader as a CEO of a startups, you know, emerging scale up, and you have to hire um, older colleagues per se, did that, did that ever come up? And, and if not, just how do you handle that for, for maybe an aspiring founder listening that might have this challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think there's exposure therapy. So the more that you're in it, the less you feel um, maybe that the same feelings of being an imposter. Imposter syndrome is very much real. For my last company, I was at one point, I was maybe 22 years old, 23 years old, and I was front page of the, the newspaper in Vancouver, the Vancouver Sun. And I went and met with an investor and I was having a really hard time. And he was like, hey, I saw the front page of the newspaper today. He was like, let me guess, you feel like an imposter. And I was like, yeah, it's a, it wasn't like a congratulations, you're on the front page. He's like, you must feel like crap. And I was like, yeah, you're, you know, you couldn't be more correct. I feel like a, you know, an imposter that, you know, we're not doing anything real. And if anything, that's what I, I don't really struggle with people older than me because I've just since I was 18 working with people older than me. Um, but I do struggle with, uh, with media a bit. And there's a, the Globe and Mail reached out three times to uh, write an article on us. The first two times we said, hey, we're not ready yet. The third time we became the first fractional listing on the MLS. So you could see for $15,000, 2.5% of a home. Uh, they reached out and they said, we don't care if you're ready or not. We're writing, <laughs> writing an article on you. 
um, you can decline to comment or you can, you know, you can uh, play nice with us. So then we decided to, uh, to then, uh, you know, obviously open up and share our story. And we had 200 publications write, a, write about us in a matter of probably two weeks and it went went viral more more people clicked on an article on key than the population of Canada right and I feel a bit of a a bit of a vulnerability hangover and imposter syndrome because I always want the business to be further ahead than it is and a lot of times when we talk about like we've raised a, a significant round of funding that we never announced and We've had people on our team who are like, let's announce this. Well, for me, I'm like, no, let's not announce this. Let's put our heads down. Let's build a real business and let's that, let that be our reputation, you know, not about how much money we've raised. That's just an obligation for us to build something real. So I think that's maybe more of an internal challenge than anything else where maybe there is, maybe there's the opportunity to announce it because it's going to bring great potential investors to our next round or whatever, whatever comes from it. But with ShareShed, my, one of my investors sold his last company for $40 million and was 20 years older than me and joined full-time and was reporting to me. Um, for, for, uh, for, for Key, I very much, the people that are older than me at Key, which is you know, half the company, it's great because I look up to, I look up to everyone at, at Key, to be frank. I've never worked with such a strong team in my life. Um, so there's no power dynamics of them reporting to me. I almost view it more as servant leadership of what can, if you look at an org chart and the way I have it in my head is that I'm at the bottom and that's who I'm helping support be as successful as possible. Our CMO is a past CMO, of the Toronto Stock Exchange, you know, like she, Allison's amazing. I have way more to learn from Allison than she has to learn from me, you know? Shout out. Uh, Allison's great. A hundred percent. Yeah, I really worked more in direct with Allison, but I was really pumped when when she was when she was our CMO and, uh, and and just learned a lot even from our conversation. But one of the things I really admired too about her was you can tell when some leaders really want to you know push up younger talent uh, and really give you that confidence. So I just got that even though we didn't spend that much time you know working together, it was it was I can get that right off the bat. And I think Louisa as well, if I'm not mistaken, is also on the marketing team. Uh, a former fellow colleague too, and she's great. So it's really cool to see the team. And that's why I bring up that question. It's, it's just, it's really cool to see the team you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm truly humbled by it. It's uh, it's such a cool opportunity to work so closely with these incredible leaders. And um, my, my philosophy around leadership is very much find the right people, give them the right tools and get out of their way. You know, to have someone like Allison on the team who not only comes from such a strong executive background, but is also willing to roll up her sleeves and tour people. And once she went to tour someone and the maid didn't clean it to the standard that she feels like we need to represent as a brand. So she went back and got her vacuum and then cleaned the place before the person arrived. You know, like to have that in a C-suite executive uh, is, is pretty powerful, so. That's the, uh, the runner's DNA in her, man. Exactly, exactly. She's tough as nails, so it's pretty awesome. Well, listen, I don't want to take up uh, more of your time. I just want to end on one note, too. What sort of piece of advice? You, I mean, this is the, your third go-around. Obviously, you've had the chance to work also at, at a larger scale-up like Airbnb. So you've had a share bit of lessons learned, even in a early start in a career. So curious, like what, what kind of pieces of advice would you give someone thinking of starting something in 2022? 
Well, just because of the way you preface that question is what advice would I give someone thinking about starting something? I would say that most businesses fail because they never get off the ground. Most, most people fail to start something because they're stuck in their head or they're stuck on Zoom calls or, uh, on, you know, modeling and building business plans. Yeah, not talking about it because it's stealth. Just what do you need to do to launch something today? Today. Really, whatever it is, there is a minimum viable product that you can create, whether it be a Facebook group, <laughs> Telegram chat, uh, a Substack newsletter, whatever it is, there's probably some type of duct tape solution that you can create to validate the need for your product. And you can probably get to speed to some revenue within the first month. You know, at ShareShed, we had one, um, one idea where we mapped out the five biggest blockers holding people back from being able to get outdoors. We are a marketplace for outdoor adventure gear from peer to peer. And um, that same weekend, we ran an experiment and we had, for, for guided experiences, we had 55 people sign up and pay. The next week, we ran an experiment that was just Facebook ads. No one in our community or that knew about our brand had access to it. We put $30 of ads behind it. We had 33 people sign up and pay. So our customer acquisition cost was under a dollar per customer, right? Under a dollar, which is unheard of for people who aren't familiar with, with CAC to LTV. Um, so, so anyways, that was something that for me was just so eye-opening for instead of us talking about it forever, we had an idea. One week later, we had it fully validated with revenue. Next week, we had a, a growth plan and a way that we could sustainably build the business. So if you're thinking about starting something, obviously it's a large, it's a large time investment, <laughs> whatever you start, but, uh, but you don't really know the opportunity until you do something. So it's not the critic that counts, especially not the critic in your own mind. If you want to start something, get in the arena and make it happen. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.